Good day everyone, you're listening to Time for Your Hobby, and this is episode 199, Collecting the Silver Screen Past. I'm your host Alex, and today I have the honor to have Edward as my guest on the show. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. That's fantastic. Edward and I are both having a rainy day, because, you know, who likes sun, right? We like the just the rain. It's I don't know why I always bring up weather in my podcast, but it's one of those things that is so easy for Canadians to just bring up every now and then. But today we're not going to be talking about how my luscious, luscious hair is going to get wet, which I have none. We're going to be talking about Edward's hobby of collecting movie and Star Wars cards, which is pretty cool. But before we jump into that topic, here comes a cliche question, Edward. Who is Edward? Well, Edward Havens is a Los Angeles native, born and bred, uh, who dreamt of being a filmmaker when he was a young man. Didn't quite happen the way that I wanted. I ended up uh, being a movie theater manager off and on for 34 years until uh, COVID retired me in 2020. And now I enjoy spending time with my wife and my cats and dogs and doing my podcast, the 80s movies podcast. So I gotta ask about all those links to share those podcasts and social media links. But a question that just popped up in my head since you said you were a movie theater manager. Was there, it's a weird question, not necessarily related to the topic, but was there one premiere that excited you the most? Like, wow, this is a premiere I'm so excited for. Well, being a movie theater manager in Los Angeles, you kind of lose any excitement um, about movie stars and, and things like that very quickly to the point where about 19, early 1992, I was, it was a Thursday night. I was changing the posters in the lobby for the Friday openers. And I was taking down a poster for Bugsy. Do you remember Bugsy with Warren Beatty and Annette Bening? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. So we were the last theater in Los Angeles playing it. The Academy Awards had already um, come and gone. Bugsy was a heavy favorite to win a bunch of awards, but it ended up being Silence of the Lambs. And we were the last theater in Los Angeles playing it. And as I'm taking the poster down, I feel a tap on my shoulder. I turn around and Warren Beatty and Annette Bening mm. are right there. <laughs> and Warren Beatty wants to ask me questions about his movie, how people reacted to it, um, what I thought of it. And I spent about 20 minutes talking to Warren Beatty about his movie. And I just bring that up as an aside because that was not an unnormal thing to happen. So that's just the one that I like to go to because most everybody knows who Warren Beatty is. He's still somewhat relevant in pop culture, even 30 years after the incident happened. So, but those things like that happened all the time. Uh, I could tell you about the times when my, we, at my theater, we played um, the first Quentin Tarantino movie, Reservoir Dogs. We were the first theater in Los Angeles to play it. And Tarantino hung out at the theater every day for the seven weeks that we played the movie. So when Pulp Fiction was coming out two years later, he actually hand delivered one of the first posters, the first teaser posters for uh, Pulp Fiction, the one that looked like a book cover that has Uma Thurman on the cover. And he wanted us to put it up in our front uh, poster cases that were facing the street saying coming soon to the theater. And when I asked him why, because we would never play a, a movie like that because, you know, we played um, the theater I was at at the time was a more independent 
art house theater. And this was a big movie with big movie stars and from a big studio. And he was like, well, you're my good luck charm. As in you personally or the movie theater? No, no, the, the-, the theater. <laughs> because we were the first theater to play Reservoir Dogs. And he had a fantastic time because the theater that I was working at at the time was very, I, I made sure that our theater was a very artist friendly theater where the filmmakers could come and just relax and just see how people react to the theater. It was a lot of fun. Um, some of the, that, that theater is no longer there. It was the new Wilshire theater in Santa Monica, but we had Kevin Smith there. We had, uh, Dustin Hoffman was a regular uh, visitor of the theater. Uh, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. We, we got a lot of, of stars and filmmakers there. So after a while, I don't want to say I ever got jaded, but after a while, you know, oh, there's Madonna. And you don't really think about it because you've seen Madonna 20 times already in the last six months because she always comes to your theater or, oh, there's Axl Rose. You know, so I'm throwing out 90s pop references because uh, that was the most interesting theater where a lot of these things happened. So but overall, it's, I, there's no one single memory. Uh, there's a thousand of them that have you know, just little spots in my mind now of, oh, that was fun back then. It's kind of cool to just go back in those memories. Like, oh, cool. I met this person. All right. Yeah. I met them 20 times. All right. This is just a regular, that's Bob. Yeah. Bob down the street, the one that won like seven Emmys. Yeah. Bob. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a regular, yeah. regular here. Yeah. <laughs> Casual guy. And I'm sure you've had conversations with all of them, but you know, we can go into that or, or we can go into Collecting movie trading cards, which is a cool hobby I've never heard of. And I have so many questions. But before we do that, you did mention you have a podcast. And in relation to your podcast, do you have any other social media links, websites, or even different projects you're working on that you would love to share with the listeners? Well, I started online way back in the 90s. I created a uh, online persona that I called Film Jerk uh, back in uh, 1997. And I started, I finally started my own website, a movie related website called filmjerk.com back in, on January 1st, 2000, I wasn't afraid of the Y2K bug. And just over the course of time, the, the website kind of took off for a while as a website where you could find accurate and honest reporting about entertainment. And, uh, that lasted for a good 10 or 12 years. And then I kind of let it slide for a while while other things happened. And then I started the podcast up in 2019 because a podcast that I really enjoyed called, um, oh gosh, now 80s All Over, which was hosted by two of my friends, uh, Drew McWeeny and Scott Weinberg. Uh, they kind of finished their podcast prematurely because of things that were going on in their lives that precluded them from continuing. They had a um, idea that they wanted to talk about 80s movies one month at a time. So their first episode was January, 1980. And they would talk for about an hour, hour and a half about all the movies that came out in January, 1980. And then the next one was February 80 and they kept going on, but somewhere around March or April of 1985, they announced that they would, they would not be able to continue. And I had thought about starting a podcast, but they were kind of doing what I would have done. So when, when, when Scott and Drew announced that they were no longer going to be doing their podcast, I kind of saw an opportunity for me with my film knowledge, with my film background to 
not do exactly what they did, but do something a little different where instead of talking about all the movies that came out during a particular month or talk about a specific one specific topic, I would kind of bounce around the entire decade talking about specific filmmakers or specific actors. But most of the time I talk about these long forgotten distribution companies that had an attitude, had a, like, for example, there's a company that came out in the eighties called Canon Films. They made a lot of movies with Chuck Norris. They made a lot of uh, ninja movies. They made uh, break in and break into electric boogaloo. They had a certain, uh, they were the ones who launched John Claude Van Damme. And so they had a certain je ne sais quoi. They, they had a certain style. And then there was trauma films that made a lot of low budget horror films. And there was Vestron pictures and all these companies that had hits like dirty dancing where, and then they disappeared after a few years. And as we go down history and the eighties become the nineties, become the two thousands, become the 2010s, become the 2020s. What was once popular and enjoyed in the eighties is now pretty much forgotten in the 2020s because streaming only gives you or highlights what is currently hot. And there's, there were about 10,000 movies that were made and released, whether it was uh, in theaters or on home video or on cable in the course of the eighties. And most podcasts that talk about the eighties only talk about the same 50 to hundred movies, whether it's Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars or Star Trek, Ghostbusters. And so, although I do occasionally from time to time talk about the big films, uh, I did two episodes about Steven Spielberg, one as a director in the eighties and one as a writer and producer in the eighties. I'm not adverse to the blockbusters, but I want to be able to share my knowledge of, of film history with people who might not be aware of all of these very interesting movies that came out over the years that they can't easily access on Netflix or Hulu that you might have to do a little searching for uh, the few home video stores that still exist across the country and just, Oh, Hey, that, that could be interesting. I'm finishing up an episode this week about, um, a movie from Peter Bogdanovich, who uh, passed away in January. He was a pretty famous filmmaker in the 70s. He made three movies that were considered classics, back to back to back, Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. Uh, between them, 12 Oscar nominations and several wins. And then he kind of hit a hit a, uh, a lull in his career. And in 1980, he made a movie called They All Laughed, which had stars like Ben Gazzara and Audrey Hepburn and John Ritter. But then there were circumstances that caused the film to kind of be lost in the shuffle and really hasn't been seen or even discussed much over the last 40 years. So I want to be able to use my knowledge as a film historian, my abilities as a researcher to kind of bring forward the stories about the movies that you either never knew existed or you kind of forgot over the years. That is a wonderful way of putting it. And I can imagine that the part of the fun of finding these movies is just like when you find you're like, oh, what is this lost treasure? And what I actually love about this day and age is that some people are finding these and not, they're not only keeping it for themselves, but they're up uploading to like sites such as archive.org, which is like the archive of the internet. 
and just everything created. So that way is you're just sharing history because without people doing this, it would have been just lost forever. Correct. So this is, this is love. And this is what I love about how you're approaching this. You're not only tackling the first 100 popular movies from that decade or multiple decades, you're going deeper in because there's some creative people who didn't get the recognition that they deserved. Absolutely. But that's like, once again, that's a topic like we can dive so much deeper into and I, I'm loving this, but there's another way to experience movies. And this is something I have never seen. And the way you brought it up is like, okay, this is cool. Collecting movie trading cards. So what is that exactly? If you don't mind me or mind giving a definition. Okay. So, um, when you were a kid, uh, did you follow like the expos or the blue Jays? Yeah. Yeah. And you could go down to a liquor store and you could buy a pack of um, OPG or Tops trading cards. And, you know, you open up and there's a stick of gum and there's a bunch of <laughs> and there's a bunch of cards of a bunch of players. And you were hoping maybe to get a, uh, you know, one of your favorite players. Well, companies like Tops and OPG would have contracts with movie studios and movie producers to do something similar for for movies. So. If you were a fan of Star Wars, you could go down and instead of buying a pack of baseball cards, you could buy a pack of Star Wars cards. And and that's really kind of where the movie trading card um, craze kind of really took off. If they were around for, for decades before then, you could have gotten Three Stooges cards or Man from Uncle cards or or whatever. But Star Wars is the modern start point for um, movie trading cards. And so over the years, I was always more of a movie fan than a baseball fan or a hockey fan. I, I love baseball and I love hockey, but movies were my main love. And so if I was at a store and I saw, and I had a couple bucks in my pocket and, you know, these cards were, these packs were like 25, 30 cents a pack. So I could buy eight or 10 packs of cards at a time with my allowance and go home and rip open those packs. And, oh, hey, oh, I've already got that card. Oh, hey, check out this new card. On the front would be a color picture from the movie. And on the back, it would either have a description of the scene that's depicted on the front of the card, or maybe it was a quote unquote puzzle piece where if you put um, certain cards together on the opposite side of the main, on the front, on the back, where you put these cards together, like nine cards together, and it would actually make a picture, a, a large picture of, of another scene. And so over the years, I collected Star Wars cards and I collected Superman cards and all this stuff. And then, you know, as you get older, these things kind of start to fade away. And eventually your mom throws them out or <laughs> you, lose, you, you lose them in a... You lose them in a move or you misplace them or whatever. So for, for many years, I just kind of was out of the habit. And then in, I want to say 1994, uh, the Topps Trading Card Company started up a new series of Star Wars uh, trading cards. The special editions wouldn't be out for a couple more years. The new trilogy, the, the, the prequel trilogy wouldn't be out for another half decade, but they sensed that there was a resurgence coming in the franchise. And so they put out these cards called wide vision. And instead of it being a little like 
three by five card. It was more like a three by six or seven card. It was wider than a normal trading card. And instead of it being on that kind of flimsy paper stock, it was a nice glossy photo and nice, a nice thick card stock. And it kind of started a resurgence in me of, oh yeah, I used to love collecting these trading cards. And so, and by now I'm an adult, I'm a movie theater manager, I'm making movie theater manager money, which uh, while what wasn't going to make me a millionaire, I could afford to drop 30 or $40 on a box of trading cards and then try to complete my set or, you know, have find friends who I could trade with like I did in, in, in my youth. And then life kind of happened again and I had to get rid of the cards. And then back in 2017, my wife graduated from Berkeley Law School and we moved back to Los Angeles. And there's this great bookstore in downtown Los Angeles called The Last Bookstore. And it's um, got just thousands and thousands of books. And it's been used in a lot of, you've seen, if you've been, if you're a movie watcher, you've seen The Last Bookstore in a lot of different movies. They even recently used it to shoot a video for the 50th anniversary of George Harrison's, one of George Harrison's songs from his uh, first solo album, which features all these big stars. Then they also shot part of it at the Vista Theater, which Quentin Tarantino owns now. But it's a very, it's a pretty famous bookstore. And one of the things you can do when you're there is they have a barrel that's filled with old packs of unopened movie cards, but stuff that's like the second level tier of like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or um, New Kids on the Block. I mean, this is the literally bottom of the barrel stuff. And you could buy a pack of unopened trading cards that are 25 years old for 95 cents. And then at the checkout counter, they have a different section of old trading cards that's constantly in rotation because of of what they can get their hands on. And so I was living downtown. I was living two blocks from the bookstore. I would regularly go to the bookstore and I just started noticing, oh, well, I could get a pack of Rocky four trading cards for two bucks. I can get a pack of Superman two trading cards for three bucks. And oh my gosh, they have the unopened original 1983 packs from Return of the Jedi for like four bucks for a pack of cards. And to me, that was an that was a reasonable price for that thing because like, these are still sealed. The gum is still in there after forty plus years. So, over the course of the last four years, I have kept a running list of what I have, and um, so every time I go to the store, I can open up my Evernote, and I can I can see oh if I already have these these cards or not. So whether it's a, a big blockbuster like Moonraker, the James Bond movie, or Star Wars or whatever, or if it's a forgotten movie like Baby, which uh, Disney produced in 1985 about a guy who discovers the baby dinosaur in modern times, it kind of brings me back to, to my youth and how fun it was to be able to buy a pack of trading cards and take it home and open it up and see if you got something you needed or something that was really cool looking, or if you just got a bunch of cards that you already had. So what I've been doing is buying them in two sets of two. So I can 
keep one closed up and then I can open one up and I have a binder that has, you know, pockets for each of the, the, the unopened packs and pockets for each of the cards. And so I've got Dick Tracy cards from 1990, going back to Warren Beatty again, I've got all of these, the, these series of cards from all of these years, like um, apparently they never made cards for RoboCop when RoboCop came out in 1987, because it's a rated R movie. It's not really for kids. So when RoboCop 2 came out in 1990, they deliberately made it so it would be a PG-13 movie. So they made RoboCop 2 cards, but half of the set was the original RoboCop movie. But the packs were marked RoboCop 2. And so, you know, there was like 100 cards in the set. And the first 50 cards were for the original RoboCop movie. And the second 50 cards were for RoboCop 2. So being able to just open up those packs and go through those cards, you see on YouTube, you can see these unboxing videos of people who spend uh, $200 on these like ultra rare Star Wars cards that they call Masterworks that are guaranteed to have, you know, a, a at least one card in, in the box with a signature of one of the stars of the, of the movies, whether it's Harrison Ford or Carrie Fisher or the guy who played Admiral Akbar, And so, but for me, you know, those unboxing videos are, are not exciting or, or interesting because they're somebody else's stuff and they're, you know, I'm not going to pay $200 for a box of cards that only have four packs in them that only have five cards in each pack. It doesn't matter how good the quality is. I'm not buying it as an investment. I'm not buying it to try to oh, pull a, a Carrie Fisher card that's now worth $1,000, quote unquote, because she, she is no longer with us and can't sign any more cards. I'm not into that whole speculative thing. I collect because of the joy that it brings me and the memories of what it was like to open those packs 35, 40 years ago. And it has me thinking when you do open these packs, sometimes there can be defects in cards. Do you have any cards that has a defect? You're like, oh, cool. This is a very unique one. And it's not a monetary value that you look at it from a point of view. It's more like a, huh, it's like a misspell of a name or a color is a little off, but it makes it pretty unique. There have been cards like that. Uh, the most famous a Star Wars trading card from 1977. Uh, one of the artists at Tops um, put a phallus, a gold phallus on C-3PO. Uh, <laughs> and it was on, in one of the pictures and it was caught very quickly, but some of the cards got out. So if you had that card, that card could conceivably be worth several hundred or a thousand dollars. But again, I don't collect for the financial value. I have no plans on ever selling any of these cards. So I'm, and I'm not even attempting to try to collect an entire set. I just want to be able to have these cards. Like I said, I buy them in, in sets of two so that I can open one and keep one sealed. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm gone and whoever claims my collection, you know, let them do whatever they want with it. I'm, I'm, I won't worry about it. I can't do anything about it anyway. But while I'm here, I enjoy these cards. In fact, uh, this morning, I pulled, I haven't touched the binder in a while because the 
because of the pandemic, I haven't gone to stores for shopping as much as I used to. But I pulled it out today to look at them again. And to, it's like, oh, yeah. And see, like, for example, you know, if you've, you're opening up a pack of Moonraker cards from 1979, well, that gum has been in there for 43 <laughs> years. And it's against, it's, you know, it's, as, as the pack, as you unwrap the pack, it's between the, the wax wrapping and one of the cards. So that one card is going to be a little damaged probably after having a piece of gum sit next to it for 43 years. But to me, it doesn't matter how damaged it is or not. It's a matter of being able to remember what it was like to watch Moonraker for the first time in 1979 and how much it solidified my love of James Bond movies and eventually my love of the Bond novels. So for me, it's just an extension of, of the joy that movies bring me. It's interesting you say that because when I was cleaning out my grandfather's house that we now live in, we ended up finding an unopened Game Boy from 1989 that wow. still had batteries in it, like in the boxes, batteries included. And for me, I grew up with video games. So when I saw that, I'm not looking at it at a monetary value. I'm looking at this like, this is cool. It's a part of history that's untouched. And it meant so much to me. I'm like, oh, cool. I'm looking at it right now. I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of me that wants it open it up, but you know, that corrosion of those batteries cannot be good. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah. In fact, um, one of the other things that, that as I grew up, the one thing I actually did hang on to from my childhood was my Atari 2600. So from, cause I had, I had earned the money to buy that. I bought that Atari myself. It wasn't a gift from my mom or dad. I worked for that. So for, and then as I got older and the internet made it a lot easier to find the things that I was missing over the course of 24 years, I had collected about 98% of all the games ever released for the Atari 2600, including, and there's there, the way that they rate it is that there's like common games that everybody had, like, you know, every, if you, if you bought the original Atari 2600s in the late seventies, it came with combat. And then in 1982, it came with Pac-Man. So those are common games because everybody had those. And then there's uncommon games and there's rare games and extremely rare games. And then after that point, there's a different grading scale because there were a bunch of games that never even got released where uh, a company was had a, a programmer writing a game and they only made a few test cartridges. and the game never got actually completed or released. And I was even able to get a lot of those and spend a good amount of money to get all of those where when I finally decided to sell this system in 2003, I had collected over 98% of all the games that were ever made by Atari, by Activision, by uh, every any company. and And some of those games only had five or six copies in existence. And there's several games where there's only one copy in existence, a test copy that never for games that never got completed or never got finished. And that's like, that was the Holy grail, but uh, my wife wasn't too happy with all the space <laughs> it was taking up. And we were living in a, 
in a railroad apartment in Brooklyn that didn't have a whole lot of space. So I eventually had to get rid of it, but I was able to sell it to another collector for several thousand dollars because that collector understood the value of what my collection came with. So, so that was fun. I, I mean, I loved my Atari and I would love to have my Atari again now that I actually have a house and um, an office where I could hook it up again. You know what? Just tomorrow, there's going to be an Atari that just shows up at your doorstep. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think my wife would like that, but she has, you just tell her, oh no, how did this get here? Oh, I guess we have to uh, adopt it. <laughs> well, we already have, we already have two PlayStation fours and an Xbox, uh, one and an Xbox 360 and, a and, a, a Nintendo. We, we have our, we already have too many gaming systems as it is. And she's, <laughs> she's probably in the living room playing fallout as we talk. Cause she's a gamer too. And she, she's a lawyer for a gaming company, which, you know, makes my wife officially the coolest woman on the planet. <laughs> well, I guess I might have to have her on this podcast too. Oh, you'll, it'll, you'll never have it. She, she, <laughs> she, she supports what I do. She loves me very much, but she thinks podcasts are absolutely stupid. And <laughs> she, she admires Michelle Obama she would never listen to Michelle Obama's podcast. She <laughs> loves Hillary Clinton. She would never listen to Hillary Clinton's, but she thinks podcasts are stupid, but she understands how important it is to me and how much I enjoy doing mine. And so she supports me in that endeavor, but she's never listened to a single episode I've made. And I know this because I've specifically dropped things in there where if she had heard it. <laughs> I would know that she heard it. <laughs> it's, it's like when you write an essay and you put in a swear word just to see if the professor will catch it. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. But she loves me, so she supports me. But she she will she would never listen to a podcast and she would never guest on a podcast, even though um I think she would she's a she's an intelligent woman and, and she's very very um well spoken, but and I think she'd make a fantastic guest on any show that would have her, but she would never do it. You could only wish, right? But you know what? As long as she is supportive of you and you're supportive of her, that's what's, that's what's important, right? Correct. And uh, we were talking about the cars themselves. You were talking about Star Wars, but if you had to sum it up, how many different movie genre or movie series or different movies do you have these cards from? So let's say some that are known, some that are unknown as well. Well, right now, um, let me see if I can pull up that list. I'm on my phone. I'm on my Evernote. And I just got to remember <laughs> where the list is. Because like I said, I haven't updated it in, in a while. Oh, here we are. So right now, of the cards that I have, Baby, the dinosaur movie I talked about, Back to the Future 2, um, the original 1989 Batman, but only series two because there was more than one series. Uh, the Black Hole, which uh, the Disney movie with um, Ernest Borgnine and Robert Forster, that the, the ship that was circling the black hole and then eventually got sucked in. I don't know if you know it, but it's a fun movie. And if you have Disney Plus, you should watch it, especially if you have kids. They'll like the, uh, the crazy uh, robots that are supposed to mimic R2-D2 and C-3PO. Um, Dick Tracy. Um, I've got some mid 2010 Doctor Who cards, uh, Ghostbusters 2, Gremlins 2, Hook, the Steven Spielberg, uh, Peter Pan movie, Indiana Jones. Um, now, they, I don't have Raiders cards and I don't have specific cards. They just released one set 
of all three movies, like back in like 1990. So they're they're an encompass of all three movies. Uh, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D, which is interesting because not only does it have a normal set of trading cards, each pack comes with one pair of those red, blue uh, 3D glasses and a, and a card that if you put the 3D glasses on and then look at the card, it, the card is in 3D. It's not in full color. It's basically, you know, one bluish image and one reddish image that when you put the glasses on, your mind combines it into one image. It's, it's crude, but for 1983, it was pretty darn cool. Little Shop of Horrors, the, the Steve Martin, Rick Moranis movie from 1986. Uh, Moonraker, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Robocop 2, Rocky 4. I've got cards from the original Star Trek motion, the motion picture from 1979. Packs from each of the first three Superman movie with Christopher Reeve. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So it's, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, 22 of the non-Star Wars cards. And then <laughs> I have pretty much every major movie-related Star Wars set for uh, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker and The Mandalorian and waiting for hopefully a very soon a book the book of boba fett set those are the ones that i really enjoy uh because not only do they have the cards but it's kind of i have to admit it's kind of fun that they now have chase cards i don't know if you know about this but if you're buying them if you're buying cards from walmart or if you're buying cards from target or if you're buying cards from toys r us when they were still open uh, they would have these things called chase cards, which were cards that were specifically only available in specialty packs from those individual retailers. So if you bought a pack from Toys R Us, it would have this one set. And if you bought a pack from Target, it might have cards from this other set. And if you bought them from Walmart, they'd have this other set. And so it's a lot of fun because each of the card sets is different. And then in and of themselves, each of those sets has unique collectibles. So um, some of them might come with a patch that you could pop off the card and, and iron it onto, you know, your jacket or something. And some of them might have a, a special card that has in, embedded into the card um, a piece of a costume that was used in the movie or a, a signature card or or just a variety of, of things. So some of them are very valuable. Some of them are, are not so valuable. In fact, one of the cards that I have that I got from the set for the, uh, the first uh, of the newest trilogy, The Force Awakens, I got a card that was signed by the actor who uh, did the voice for Admiral Akbar. And he wasn't an actor. He was actually somebody who I found out later lived two blocks from me in Berkeley when my wife was going to, to, to Berkeley law school and he had passed away literally the day before I had bought that pack that had his card with his signature on it. But I didn't learn that he was literally my neighbor until like a month after that happened. So that was kind of like an interesting, it wouldn't be interesting to anybody else, but to me, getting a card of Admiral Akbar signed by the actor who did the voice for Admiral Akbar, who happened to be my neighbor. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is very cool. You said it's not, it's only interesting to you. That's really interesting to me too. 
That's yeah, awesome. I mean, it, it's just one of those weird coincidences because <laughs> I could have gotten Mark Hamill or I could have gotten Ewan McGregor or or anybody else. But instead, you know, I got a non-actor who George Lucas knew from doing research into some phenomenon. And this guy was an, an expert in his field. And George liked the sound of his voice and thought, I could use that in a movie. So he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't even an actor. He was a, he was a physician or a, I forget exactly what he, what he did or what his name is at the moment, but that, that card, you know, it was just like, wow, you know, Admiral Akbar. And then I just, then I was, um, you know, researching who the guy was, you know, to discover that he literally died the day before I got his card and then discover a few weeks later that he literally lived down the street around the corner from where I was living at the time was just a, a weird coincidence. It's a very small world indeed. Yep. And you know, my mind runs at 100 kilometers an hour in every direction. So it just led me to think like you're saying these, there's these cool, I wouldn't call them gimmicks, but like cool things they add in these pack of cards. And when you were telling me your story, I was just picturing for a second, like, oh, somebody just put a lock of hair in there. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> just a lock of hair up from the actor. Like you got Mark Hamill's hair in the pack of cards. That's a they weird don't thing. go that, they don't go that <laughs> far. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So my follow-up question is, what is the most interesting thing that you've seen them done? Like the 3D glasses or uh, anything else? Well, for me, I think that it's really cool that they that Lucasfilm would be willing to allow costumes from the movies to be literally cut up and put into uh, trading cards because uh, Lucasfilm Lucas was very adamant about keeping everything from his movies. Uh, there's a picture book about the Lucasfilm archives. And he kept everything from every movie. Um, when, when The Force Awakens opened in 2015, I was managing a theater up in the Bay Area. And one of my regulars happened to work for the Lucasfilm Archives in, in Marin County, even though we were uh, living, I was working in Walnut Creek, which was a good hour drive away. He showed up for the very first show that, you know, 7 p.m. show on on the Thursday night before it officially opens. And he brought one of the art, the actual R2 units from the movies to the theater so that people could take their picture with R2-D2. That's cool. So um, and of course, it was a crazy night. But and I was running around and doing all this stuff. And then as I'm walking by him at one point, he just stops me and he goes, I know you love Star Wars. Can you just stop for four seconds so I can take a picture of you with, for you with, with R2-D2? That's so cool. You know? And so I did. And then the next year when Rogue One came out, he brought R2 again. <laughs> and then he also brought, um, are you familiar with the original Star Wars? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when R2-D2 and 3C3PO are, are being sold to Luke Skywalker um, and his uncle, there's originally R2 is not a part of the sale. They buy another robot called R5D4. And then the robot blows a motivator and they kind of get R2 at the urging of, of, of 3PO. And so he brought R2D2 and R5D4. Um, but this time I knew he was coming and I knew he was bringing both of them. So we were able to be more prepared for it. 
And so uh, two of my the favorite pictures, my favorite selfies is one of me in the lobby of my theater with R2-D2. And then the next year, I've got a picture of me in one of the actual auditoriums in front of the screen with R2-D2 on one side of me and R5-D4 on the other. And knowing that those were the real robots that were used in the movies, that's just, again, it goes back to the joy of what movies can bring to us. And so, but so, but to, the, to answer the question, I love that Lucasfilm was able to allow, even if it's just a, a minor character, a shirt from, you know, the, the guy who gets his arm chopped off in the cantina in the first movie, but it, does, it doesn't necessarily have to be Sam Jackson's Jedi robe, but just that they were allow an actual costume from the movie to just get cut up and distributed into packs of trading cards to me is just amazing. And, and tops had been doing that for years with, um, with the baseball jerseys of players, you know, you could get a card that had, and it's only like a one inch by one inch square. You're not getting the whole darn thing, <laughs> but it's just, it's a small, it's a small piece of fabric, but you know, but that small piece of fabric was worn by an actor and is in the movie or that if you're a baseball card collector, that fabric is from a Jersey that Nolan Ryan used during his pitching career or um, Mark McGuire or whoever, you know, because they would have different players do it. And then the players would sign that card as well. So just, I love that collecting has gotten to a point now where you're making it more exciting for collectors. The, the downside of that, is, of course, is <clears throat> a lot of people buy up a good part of the available supply because they're trying to get, you know, the 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 e-ticket cards, the you know, the things that are going to be worth hundreds or thousands of dollars. And and then you don't have a chance to even finish your collection just by buying cards or you, you go to tops.com and they've already sold out of the, you know, the boxes that have the complete collection. So that's the downside of, of collecting is that a lot of people collect not for the joy of collecting, but for what they expect to make in profit. And if you watch these unboxing videos, they'll actually, you know, you'll see, it's like, I bought a, pack of 1986 Fleer basketball cards because the Michael Jordan rookie card is worth five or $10,000 if it's in there. And the chance of there being a Michael Jordan rookie card in that pack is, is extremely slim. And so they're like, they try to create excitement of, from every card that they, they turn over in the hopes that they finally got a Michael Jordan rookie card that's going to make them rich. So that's, that's the downside. But for me, you know, whether it's um, a card with a signature of Admiral Akbar or something else, I love that they've introduced an extra level of excitement to go with collecting. But I still would collect even if they didn't have them. I would still buy those cards if it, and even as a collector, I don't try to collect every single subset from every single store. I don't shop at Walmart for for personal reasons. So I don't worry about trying to get all the Walmart cards because I don't shop at Walmart. So, so that for me though, that's just, it's just, it's the excitement and the joy that it brings. 
So you're saying you don't shop at Walmart. So what is your preferred method to obtain new cards? Is there a specific store you'd like to go to? Do you also, let's say, shop on eBay, for example, or anywhere else? Now, for me, when I, well, I was living in the Bay Area when I was living in Berkeley and working in Walnut Creek. Walnut Creek, if you go like eight blocks north, there's a town called uh, uh, Pleasant View. And there was an actual baseball card shop there where I would go. And they would have the Star Wars cards and I would either buy a, a box or if it was, if I didn't have the money for a full box, I'd buy, you know, five or 10 packs of cards or um, I would go to Target. I would go to Toys R Us and sometimes Toys R Us would have really cool things to tie into um, the release. So like there, there was a day in 2015 it was called like star Wars Thursday. And it was like three months before uh, the force awakens was released in theaters where the first wave of collectibles for the force awakens was being released and targets were being, were, were opening at midnight so that they could officially put these on sale. And so toys R us was like, if you come in and buy X amount of star Wars stuff on at midnight on on star wars thursday or whatever the day was we'll give you a free t-shirt that had a um an image of a funko pop with one of the the star wars funko pops that was being released that day i don't collect funko pops but i have a, a co-worker that did and so i got off work a little early that night i went down to toys r us i spent about a hundred dollars in 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 on Star Wars cards that were brand new. And then when I got to work the next day, I gave Rusty the t-shirt because I knew it would make him happy. So for me, that's, that's the joy of collecting is that it's not, I'm not just making myself happy. <clears throat> I'm making my friends happy. So my follow-up question was going to be, what would you say is the best part about collecting movie trading cards? But you basically answered that. <laughs> so yeah, it's like as if you knew what the questions were beforehand. But so how about in regards to the actual organization of your collection? Do you do you have a specific way you organize your collection? Yeah. So each series of Star Wars cards, whether it's the uh, 2015 Force Awakens cards or the 2016 Rogue One cards and, and each year between 2015 and 2019, they released a new Star Wars movie and uh, Tops would release um, multiple series based on those. So. The first series would be like um, a throwback series. It was like a, a countdown too, because they couldn't give away, you know, if you're looking at the cards, they're going to give away important plot points. And you don't want to give away important plot points to a movie that doesn't come out to three months. So the first set would be that they would release was called The Road to The Force Awakens. And the cards were actually printed like the old cards from the 70s and 80s with the old time card stock and they would have designs on them that mimicked various older star wars cards from the 70s and 80s then a week or so before the movie came out they would release the official first series of the movie cards which would have all of the each individual character would have its own card and each like spaceship would have its own card and on the back would be a brief description because again the movie hasn't come out yet so 
the cards would like kind of prep you for the movie. And then a month or two after the movie came out, they released series two, which had, you know, like the actual storyline in picture form. So the way that I do it is I have a binder for each movie. And, and then I have a, a, a label on the front that, you know, on the spine that says 2015 and the force awakens 2016 rogue one, 2017, the last Jedi and so on. And the front pages would have an unopened pack of cards in, in the pockets. So there's three sets from each series. So I've got a, a four, you know, a, a page that's got four um, spaces for sleeves. So each space has an unopened pack. And then the next, you know, they're, they're, they're these card sleeves that have nine pockets on each page. And so from one to whatever, the one to a hundred, the cards are in one, two, one, two, three, four, and so on to the end. And one of the things that Tops has been doing with the cards is that they have various levels. So, you know, one pack will come with like six common color cards and one uncommon color card and then one card that was either be an extra a rare or an extremely rare color and so i my binder will have just the 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 common cards which are blue and then um, once i would complete the set i would keep the other cards including the the rarer cards in a box it's just called a card box it's a cardboard box that you know you can buy them in uh, lengths that will hold approximately 200 cards or 440 or 600 or 800. So depending on how many cards I had for that, for that, um, that movie, you know, I would keep the extra cards um, in, in the boxes. So in my one for the 2015 movie, uh, the force awakens, I've got, you know, one through a hundred. And then after that, I've got a page or two of the chase cards from, from target. And then after that, the chase cards from Toys R Us. And after that, um, the chase cards from another store, or they would have various subsets within the regular packs of cards. So I would have them in, in, in a certain order. And then after that, do that again with the series one cards, and then do that again with the series two cards and their various chase cards. And so I've got, five binders for the five movies released between 2015 and 2019. And then I have a separate binder for the older uh, cards and the ones that don't fit within the, the narrative, the, the, the card collecting narrative per se, because sometimes Burger King would release a series of cards and they're not made specifically by tops, but you know, Burger King would license from Lucasfilm, the the right to make a series of cards based on a movie. Or um, a couple of years ago, when the Han Solo uh, prequel movie came out with uh, Woody Harrelson, Denny's had a you go to Denny's and you order a certain uh, type of breakfast, and they would bring you a pack that had two cards that were exclusive to Denny's. So. I didn't, I don't eat a Denny's cause I need to watch my weight and my cholesterol. So I didn't get any of those, but you know, if I'd gotten those, those cards would go in with the solo cards, but 
other companies would release Star Wars related cards that weren't specifically tied into a specific movie. So I have a binder that's got the 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 original 1983 Jedi cards that I've been able to collect in my adulthood and um, other cards that for one reason or another have come into my collection that don't tie into a specific movie. And then I have another binder that has the other non-Star Wars cards in alphabetical order. So first I've, you know, I've got baby and then I've got back to the future Two, you know, and, and Batman. And so they're in alphabetical order. So if I want to go back to specifically you know, the Jaws 3D cards and pull out a pair of glasses and look at those cards. I know where to find them because I keep them in alphabetical order. And it had me thinking, because you were talking about series one, it comes out before the movie comes out. Now, for those that you have collected before watching the movie, did they do justice for you to watch the movie? Like, wow, these are really representing the movie. I'm getting more excited for it. Kind of like watching a trailer. Um, in a sense, because usually the cards were timed to come out as the movie was coming out. So they wouldn't spoil because I'll give you a good example. If you were um, an avid book reader in 1980 and you read the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back, you would have known that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father a full month before the movie came out. Because the novelization came out in April and the movie came out in May. And in the novelization, it's right there, plain as day. But now, and, and people didn't care so much about spoilers back then. But now we become so entrenched in don't spoil me. I don't, you know, I want to know if Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are in the new, uh, new Spider-Man movie, but I don't want to know. I, you know, and so card collecting today is, is very tricky because you they don't want to give away anything before people have a chance to experience it. So that's why they have different series. So, you know, for those star Wars movies that came out in 2015 to 2019, they, they deliberately set it up so that you have a storyline that leads to that movie. So the cards for rogue one would concentrate on the one, two, three episodes that, that led you to and other storylines from books or comics that would lead you to those people going after that information for the Death Star that, you know, at the end gets handed over to, to Princess Leia. But in, in the cards for The Force Awakens, it would encompass, even though it was the same number of cards, 100, it would, all, it would encompass not only the first three movies and the various other tie-ins for comics and novels, but it would also have the original trilogy. So back in the seventies and eighties, yeah, they were very representative of, of the storyline because that was their intent. The intent was to, to remind you of what you liked about the movie. Cause again, we didn't have the internet in 1977. We didn't have cable or if you had cable, you were very lucky because cable wasn't widely available. VCRs were just starting to become popular. And so they were meant to be remembrances to, to remind you of what you liked about the movie. So the nature of the trading card has changed as now we have 4k Blu-rays of our favorite movies from 40 years ago. And then when the new movie comes out, 
you know, you have to walk that fine line of how much information are we going to give our audience before they actually have a chance to see it? Um, in I'm, fact, and sorry to interrupt, but like, for example, this week, there's a bunch of speculation now of which characters are going to be in the new Doctor Strange movie because Lego and other people who ha uh, other companies that have tie-ins with those uh, Marvel movies are now starting to send out their brochures to um, store buyers. And it's like, uh, so now there's, you know, there's speculation of whether or not a certain character from Spider-Man No Way Home is going to appear in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And we're not talking Tom Holland. So because or, or is Patrick Stewart in the movie as Professor Xavier from another part of the multiverse? Because in our universe, he might be dead, but in another universe, he might be alive. And so but because somebody saw one of those brochures and decided to scan the pages and have a quote unquote exclusive, oh, you know, this confirms that character X is going to be in this movie that doesn't even come out for three months. So now you have to walk a very fine line as a creator of memorabilia to try to make sure that you don't give away things before the movie comes out. So it's a, it's a very tricky, it's a very tricky line to walk and I don't, I don't envy them trying to walk it. And as everybody knows, Tom Holland Sometimes likes to spoil things <laughs> by accident. And Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> and Mark Ruffalo. I remember that clip. <laughs> Not everybody dies. Uh, well, yeah, sure. That was <laughs> so funny. Uh, but it's kind of it's kind of cool that thin line that they have to walk on, like what they have to put on the card. Because like you said, people will analyze it to death and they will find the smallest detail. I was it like what Doctor Strange are looking into the mirrors. They saw the shield for Captain America. They they thought or people were saying they saw Deadpool too. So <laughs> people will investigate. We have private investigators everywhere. Yeah, well, well we have we have internet investigators everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People who do their own research. <laughs> and what would you say are some misconceptions about people who collect movie trading cards? I don't think that there's any misconceptions just because we all, I mean, for, for, for people of a certain age, um, we grew up collecting baseball cards and, and you can still collect baseball cards today. You can go to, you know, Target or Walmart and, and these stores and they're out there right now. They uh, tops just released their first series of 2022 cards, even though we don't even know if we're going to have a baseball season yet, but you can go down to a, card store or you can go to a, a big retailer and you can buy trading cards today. So I don't think there's a lot of misconceptions because it's something that is built into our pop psychology and it's something that never really faded away. And most people have hobbies of their own. So I don't think that, that it has any kind of misconceptions. I think we now are now part of a society where we understand that people have different reactions to how we enjoy things. And so outside of politically touchy subjects or sociological touchy subjects, trading cards aren't that touchy of a subject. It's not something that you really parade around. I mean, if I didn't tell you that I collected movie trading cards, 
that's something you would never know about me. And I don't think you have a, you probably don't have that. You probably didn't have a preconceived notion of what a person was who collects movie trading cards because you don't really know a lot of people, or you may know a lot of people who do, but you don't know it because it's not something that is publicly advertised. It's something that I enjoy in my home and that I will share with my nephew or other people, like-minded people, but it's not something that is secret or shameful. It's just something that is done in the shadows, for lack of a better word. And nowadays, the nerd and geek culture is just being more exposed and people are more into it back. So I was born in the 90s and liking these kind of things that wasn't cool. People didn't like it. And I'm sure it was the same thing back in the 80s and 70s, like liking comic books and stuff like that, you were seen as a specific type of person. But nowadays you have people like Samuel L. Jackson likes anime. The nerd culture is coming back in a way that it's a positive light. So yeah, movie trading cards, it has the chance of becoming retro again in the sense that a lot more people and hopefully I'm doing my part by bringing you on here and that might encourage somebody else to start their own movie trading card collection. Yeah, I've, I've in fact, just this morning, while I was perusing Twitter during breakfast, someone who I don't particularly, I don't follow them, but somebody who I do follow retweeted, um, they have a comic book store in Detroit where uh, for a dollar, you could, you put four coins into, uh, you know, those machines that you, that like spit out uh, stickers that you can put on your on your backpack or, or on your like a giant gumball machine kind of thing kind of but you, you put four quarters you, you push the slot in and a trading card from robocop 2 will come out and it got a fairly decent reaction and my reaction was is it a full pack or is it just single cards because a dollar for one card of of robocop 2 cards isn't worth it for me because i can get a full pack of nine and a sticker for three bucks so for me, if it was a pack for, if it was a full pack for a buck, fantastic. How many can I get? How many can you send me? <laughs> but if it's a single card for a buck, it's that, that's not value. That's not a value to me because I can and have gotten full packs for three bucks that give me more than triple the amount of cards for the same cost. See what you have to do. And my old grocery store used to have this. It was a gumball machine. And if you just turn the, the handle just right and just wiggle back and forth, you can get multiple gumballs. You know, yeah. Maybe maybe there's a technique with that one where you just like push it in just right and go wiggle back and forth. You can get multiple cards for just one dollar. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to go all the way to Detroit from Los Angeles to get RoboCop 2 cards. <laughs> I'll do it for you there. <laughs> maybe the next time I head to Windsor to, to visit my grandmother's grave, maybe I'll stop there on the way back to the airport or something. There you go. And this might be a very tough question, but what has collecting movie trading cards taught you in life? It's taught me to enjoy what I love and to not be embarrassed about it. There are so many things going on in the world that make you feel lousy, that make you feel sad, that make you feel depressed. And collecting the cards bring me happiness. They bring me joy. They bring back good memories of, of when life was simpler. So as someone who's going to hit 55 on his next birthday in November, I try not to be nostalgic, but, on, but I love movies and I love collecting old books about movies. I love collecting trading cards about movie. Movies are my life. 
I've made them my life because they bring me joy. And some of those cards just take me back to when I was eight or 10 years old and just the memories of how wonderful it was to experience something for the first time that you don't get to have so much anymore as somebody who's in their mid fifties. So if, if you're, whatever you're collecting, whether you collect comic books or trading cards or video, old video game cartridges or whatever, just enjoy them. I, I hate that there are so many people that have, that collect Funko Pops or old Star Wars figures where they're kept mint in box because you're more concerned about how much they're, they could be worth somewhere down the line. They're meant to be played with. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that Game Boy, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to, you're, you're clearly not holding on to it because you're wondering how much you can make of it, off no, of it in no. the future. But there are people out there who have Game Boys that are still in their box that maybe the batteries are corroded if it even came with batteries, but that the value of the item is not the item itself. The value has become what it represents by still being in its wrapping and never played. And it's just like, and, and that is just to me kind of, of sad that you get no joy from having that you're, you know, it's, I have all these cards and I, I do break them out from time to time. And I look at them and I, and, and I'll, I'll pull them out and I'll, I'll hold them in my hand and flip them back and forth and enjoy the feel of it and enjoy the the smell of it. The, get, that these old cards have a, have a certain smell to them that are, that, that are, that it's just lovely. And, you know, it's, it's not like it's roses or anything, but just the smell of the card itself has a certain aroma that brings me joy from remembering what it was like when I first got those cards as a child. Not well, not those specific cards because I don't <laughs> have those for those cards anymore. But still, they they still have that smell and they still have that feel. So it's a weird line of having to walk between not wanting to be nostalgic but still wanting to enjoy what I have. So for me. I still have my original Nintendo 64 and I still play with it. Uh, my original games, the original controllers were the joystick is just loose spaghetti at this point. Um, I also have my original Pokemon collections when I was a kid and they're all beaten up because as a kid I just played with it. And for the Game Boy that's unopened, uh, for me, yeah, you're right. There's some people that go look at it like, oh, it's a monetary value. But for me, I look at the box and I remember the first day that I got in a Game Boy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is just that, the, the feeling of looking at it, like, oh, this is like the feeling of a kid just opening it up. I remember, I don't know if this is weird, but I remember when I was a kid, I got Super Smash Brothers for the Nintendo 64. The first night I was not allowed to play with it, but I was so excited to play with it. I opened it up and I took the cartridge and I slept with it. I put it underneath my pillow. <laughs> so first thing in the morning, I would run downstairs and play, with, play it. <laughs> yeah. But, but like with my son, that's like my Nintendo 64 is going to be the first console I'm going to show him. And awesome. I don't care about him breaking the controllers because they're already broken. <laughs> so I've asked this question at the beginning of the episode, but I'll ask it again at the end. Do you have any social media links, websites, or projects you're working on that you would love to share? Um, well, my, um, my Twitter feed is uh, 80s Movie Pod. And I um, 
I talk about the episodes that I've already made. I talk about the episodes that are coming up. I interact with other uh, independent podcasters like yourself. And um, I just, I enjoy doing the podcast and I enjoy sharing my history with, with others. And I just think it's, it's such an amazing thrill to see who's listening. Um, just yesterday, I got, I've been doing this since uh, July, 2019. I got my first listener from Poland yesterday. Oh, dope. Yeah. And so it's just, and to see, to see a map of the world and to see people who would not know who I am otherwise from South Africa, from Vietnam, from Colombia, from just all around the globe. I, I haven't been listened to in every country yet. I don't have listen. I don't have any listeners from China, but I don't think uh, most podcasts outside of China are available in China, but I've had people from Russia and Ukraine and, and France. And it's just amazing to see that what I'm doing is having even a, the tiniest of impact that somebody, somebody in Paris of all the things you can do in Paris, somebody decided that they would rather hear me talk about some old movie it is just amazing. Cause I love Paris. I, 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 I got my wife and I got to spend a month in Paris in 2017 and just do all, so many things. And to think that of all the things you can do in Paris, somebody's listened to me on their, on their iPhone or on, on their computer is just, it's just mind blowing. Well, you know what? That means you have a voice worth listening to and you have something of value to that individual, which is fantastic. And now for the last question, it's a tough one. Do you have any questions for me about collecting movie trading cards? Um, well, my question would be, since you have a, a small child, would this be something that now that you've discussed it with me, is this something that maybe the next time or a year or two down the road when you guys are out shopping and you're at a Target and you, or a Walmart and you see, you know, they have those sections where they have the, the trading cards for baseball or hockey or, or whatever. And you see a pack of something from a Batman movie or whatever that you will actually grab a pack and, and buy it, even knowing that you may never buy a second pack and just, Something that was, will that be something that you will enjoy or share with your child or? You know what? I would, but here's the question for myself. I'd ask, would I buy the pack before watching the movie with my child or buy, find the pack after watching a movie? So let's say it's the Lion King, for example, it was his first movie and I go out looking for a Lion King pack just to say, this is the first movie you've watched. Or do I just find this Lion King pack? I'm like, you know what? Maybe we should watch this movie and show it to him. But yeah, I would definitely be interested in doing that. I, I just don't know which one would go first, the uh, egg or the chicken. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, but, but the thing is that it might be something that you hadn't considered before that now that you've spoken to me, it's some, and I'm not going to make any money if you buy that pack of <laughs> Lion King, unless you buy it specifically for me and I don't have any packs of Lion King cards, but you know, it's just a matter of, it's, it's something that you can share with your child that you can share with your niece or nephew that you can share with your brother or sister if they're so like-minded and that's the wonderful thing about about collecting the cards is that it's not just for me it's something that i can share with with my nephew who might not have seen a james bond movie yet or 
Rocky Four or Robocop 2 or even Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Because let's face it, there's some parts of Roger Rabbit that are not appropriate for <laughs> young children. But there's something about being able to say, oh, hey, you know what? When I was when I was 12 and this came out, see this card right here? I remember this. Or and then and then you have a story to share with someone you love that you're sharing with them because you you love what you're sharing and you love the person that you're sharing with. And I'm, I'm an old hippie and I think that love is an amazing thing and joy is an amazing thing and that it's something that should be shared early and often. And that's exactly why I have you on my podcast to share that love for your passion. So there you have it. Another body with a hobby. Thank you, Edward, for coming on and just going deep into why you love movies and movie trading cards and just your passion for collecting them. If you guys would like to learn more about Edward, go check him out. I'll put all the links down below in the description, so it'll be very easy to find. If you'd like to be on my podcast or have any questions at all, you can send me an email at timeforyourhobby at gmail.com. And of course, if you like the podcast, you can leave a review. Good, bad, negative, positive. You know what? It all helps. Uh, if you want to show some more support, I do have a Patreon. I sell merchandise on Redbubble. And yeah, just give a shout out on all my social media links if you want to show some support as well. But what you do have to do is go check out Edward's podcast and the links I put down below because he's been such a splendid human being and I'm sure he would love to share more with you. So Edward, thank you once again. Thank you very much for having me. So until the next episode, make some time for your hobby. Take care. <laughs>